turn over with me to Hosea chapter 2. We're going to go ahead and finish um, the series that we've been doing on the bridal paradigm. And uh, I've really enjoyed this series. It's, I've used it as a little bit of an apologetic, a biblical apologetic to explain the, uh, the bridal paradigm and, and give biblical um, passages that, that clearly identify God's view of humankind. God, the one who calls himself the bridegroom, calls himself a bridegroom God and the way that he looks at us as, as his bride, as his people who he loves. And tonight I want to contrast the way that the Lord thinks of uh, the, the, uh, the relationship that we have in terms of being married with what he calls spiritual harlotry. And then um, talk about the way that the Lord even deals with the one that's in harlotry. That's, it's, I mean, it's stunning. It's unbelievable. And so let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to speak to us. I, I believe he'll, he'll give us revelation tonight. We love you. We love you, Abba. We love you. We greatly delight in you. Now, Lord, I'm asking that you would release revelation to us. Open up the verses once again. Open up the scriptures once again. God, that we would know the way you think and the way you feel. That we would know your emotions, what's moving in your heart. Lord, we want to comprehend you as the bridegroom God. The one who has set his desire and his delight upon people. Now, Lord, I'm asking, I'm asking, release revelation in this room tonight. Release revelation. Tenderize our hearts once again. We'd see you and we'd know you. We'd sense your presence. Lord, we love you. We love you. Good. It's in the name of Jesus. Everybody said amen. Hosea is an awesome prophetic book. It's one of my favorites. I say that about virtually everything I preach out of because once the Bible, once you read the Bible, it just becomes your favorite wherever you're reading it. And uh, I've been reading in Hosea, and guess what? It's one of my favorites. And um, Hosea is prophesying uh, about um, 840 BC. He's about. 840, 850, he's about 120 years prior to the Assyrian invasion of the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. Now, I want to set this up for you because there's, the context of Hosea is absolutely essential to, to comprehend the prophetic language that's in Hosea. If you get the way that this is, if you understand the context of this, it will totally change the way you think about what he's saying in the book. It's just the same as if I was um, talking to you and, and a person came by and they heard a sound bite of a 45-minute conversation. They may not be able to understand you know, what that one little sound bite, that little sentence meant. But if they sat in there with the whole 45-minute conversation and had the entire context, then they could understand more clearly what it is I'm saying. And that's what we have with Hosea. We have... A 12-chapter soundbite that is uh, unbelievable. It's stunning what he's saying. But if you don't have the greater context of about 275 years all the way up to the, the judgment uh, of the northern kingdom at the hands of the Assyrians, then you don't really get to grasp uh, Hosea 
in, in, at the depth that you need to grasp it. So here's what I want to go back to. I want to talk about the, uh, the nation of Israel. And I want to tell the story of the, the kingdom. Now, Israel only ever had three kings in the United Kingdom of Israel. Okay? They only had three kings that, were, uh, that led the United Kingdom of Israel. Saul, David, and Solomon. Okay? Those are the only three kings that have ever led the United Kingdom of Israel. And in the days of Solomon, Solomon had a massive uh, economic engine in something called forced labor. He demanded the people to work so that he could tax them. It was, it was really indentured servitude to the king. And so he had a massive forced labor business that um, just filled the king's coffers with finance. And so um, part of the prosperity under Solomon, uh, a large part of it, came from his forced labor division. And Solomon took a, a young man named Jeroboam, and he put him over the forced labor. He said, okay, you're in charge of this business. And it was really the, one of the main economic engines for, for the United Kingdom of Israel. Well, a uh, prophet named Ahijah, he comes and he speaks to Jeroboam, and he says, thus says the Lord. He goes, God is going to rip the kingdom in two, and he is going to give you ten tribes to follow you and leave two tribes because of the promise that he made to his servant David. Judah and Benjamin will stay in the southern and you will rule the other ten tribes in the north. And, and Jeroboam hears this word from Ahijah. And it's, it's a shocker word because, I mean, we've only had the United Kingdom of Israel for a very short time. And, and the prophet says the reason why is because of the uh, spiritual adultery that Solomon has been doing. Solomon had you know, thousands of wives and concubines, and he was worshiping the gods of his wives. He had taken the nation and gone into idol worship. And so Ahijah comes with the word of the Lord and says, God is going to tear the kingdom in two, and Jeroboam, you are going to have the ten northern tribes. So the word, it gets back to Solomon. And Solomon does what any money-hungry, idol-worshiping king would do, he tries to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam flees, and he flees to Egypt, where he, he receives help from the king of Egypt. And it's the hand of the Lord that's doing all of it. The hand of the Lord is strengthening Jeroboam and giving him a political ally in Egypt. So Solomon goes ahead and expends his days. He dies. And his son, Rehoboam, takes the throne. Rehoboam. Well, when Rehoboam takes the throne, Jeroboam comes back out of Egypt, comes back and says, Hey, listen, I'm the guy that was over the, the forced labor uh, of the whole nation. They're telling me, if you will lighten the load, Rehoboam, if you'll lighten the load off the people, not like your father did, if you'll lighten the load, the people will serve you. He goes, we all know, and now between the lines, the idea is, he goes, we all know there's this prophetic word about me. He goes, but the deal is, if you'll lighten the load, we'll all serve you. 
Now that sounds like if Rehoboam has got a clue, he needs to lighten the load and the kingdom won't be torn. So Rehoboam, he goes to his father's wise men and he says, hey, Jeroboam came, he's trying to make this deal. What do you think, dad's wise men? And, and all the father's wise men say, if you will serve the people, if you will serve the people, they will love you and serve you all the days of your life. He goes, huh, serve the people. I'm king. Why must I serve the people? Huh. He goes, hey, what about the guys that uh, I grew up with? Old college buddies. Yeah, that's who I need to get some advice from. Hey, old college buddies, what do you guys think? And he goes and makes a, 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 from, from the young men that he grew up with, counselors in the, in the royal palace. He says, now, what do you think I should do? They say, no, no, no. Your dad only oppressed him a little. Oppress him much and show them who's boss. Just like a bunch of college frat boy buddies would say. And so, Rehoboam's answer is this. He goes, uh, my dad's waist is like my little pinky. He goes, and so the point is, as hard as he was on you, that's nothing compared to what I'm going to be. And so all the people hear this word, and they go, well, we don't, we don't care about the, the house of David. What do we have to do with the line of the son of Jesse? And they all leave, and Jeroboam takes leadership of that northern ten tribes, and the kingdom is split in two because Rehoboam follows the advice of the young men. And so the Lord stops Rehoboam from making a fatal error because he's, he's rallying the troops. He's going to go fight Jeroboam. And God intervenes and gives him a prophetic word and says, no, I've done this because of the auto worship of your father. All right, so Jeroboam, now you're still with me, right? Jeroboam's the guy of the northern ten. Jeroboam has got this prophetic word from Ahijah that you're going to get the northern ten. And the Lord tells him, hey, Jeroboam, if you will serve the Lord, I will make you like David. I will bless you, and I will make you like David in the northern uh, part of the kingdom. And so Jeroboam, he has that prophetic word, but he doesn't heed it. And so what does he do? He realizes that the northern ten tribes, if they're going to worship Jehovah, they've all got to go to Jerusalem in Judah in the south. They've all got to go there every year to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's where the Lord is worshipped. That's the, the center of the uh, religious part of the society of Judaism. It's in, it's in Jerusalem, in Judah, in the southern part. So Jeroboam, he decides, well, what we, got, we can't have them do is all of a sudden start going to the south and, and finding allegiance now in the south again. So what we'll do is we'll set up two temples in the north. We'll put one in Dan in the far north and one in Bethel in the south. And what we'll do is we'll make gods that they can worship, and we'll call them Jehovah. And he makes, guess what they are? Anybody? Golden Two golden calves, that's right. Anybody ever thought of the whole idea about making a golden calf before him? <laughs> Sounds like something they did with Aaron when Moses was on the mountain kind of thing. Isn't it amazing how we'll repeat exactly the same sins? Stunning. Yeah, and they did it double. So they set up two temples, worshiping golden calves, and then Jeroboam says, you know what? Anybody can be a priest. We don't have to have special Levites to be priests in the temple. Anybody can be priests. 
And he, and he, he goes ahead and he, he makes the, the priesthood common. In fact, he himself serves as a priest. Now here's the thing. He was, he was of Ephraim. Here's the thing. That severing of the kingdom sets the northern part of, of, of the kingdom of Israel on a course of demonic idol worship all the way for the next 275 years. There's not one king that serves the Lord in the northern kingdom with his whole heart. Not one. The only guy that's even said to sort of serve the Lord is Jehu. And he's the guy that, you know, gets Jezebel uh, cast down. And so they, act, they actually go into this. And this, I, this is such a, this is a whole other message for a whole other time. But they go into demonic idol worship, worshiping golden calves in fake temples and calling it God. That's a message for another time. And what that produces in just a matter of a few generations is an Ahab who's a king and a Jezebel who's a queen who initiates Baal worship in the entire kingdom. And the whole kingdom is given over to Baal worship. Now here's the thing. In the Bible, when you see the Lord refer to Israel... Or refer to Ephraim. Um, or refer to Joseph. He's talking about the northern kingdom almost all the time. And when he refers to Judah, he's talking about the southern kingdom. Okay? So a lot of times we see God saying stuff to Israel and we don't understand the context. We think he's talking about the entire nation, but he's specifically talking to that northern kingdom who's been worshiping demons for a couple hundred years. For instance, he shows up with Hosea and he says, I despise your sacrifices. I despise your festivals. Well, why would the Lord say that if the sacrifices were things that he had instituted and, and, and they were you know, festivals that he had instituted? Well, they weren't. They were the, the festivals and the sacrifices in the northern kingdom where they were worshiping a golden calf and calling it Jehovah. Do you see that? And so when we see the, the, the prophetic verses, many times we think, man, God's so harsh the way he's talking. Well, they're worshiping demons and calling it God. And so when he shows up and, and gives hard words of correction, we just sort of think, well, they're just kind of going through the motions, trying the best they can, and here's old mean God. And that's not it at all. They set up a false system of worship that defiled 10 of the, the, uh, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they stay defiled until 726 uh, when the Assyrians come in and they destroy the northern kingdom. Completely wipe them off the map. And so when Hosea shows up, they've got 120 years before Assyria is about to show up. And Hosea shows up and he has an incredible message. Here he is, and he's prophesying in the days of Jeroboam II. It's been about 150 years since Jeroboam I. And he shows up, and the Lord tells Hosea, he says, marry a harlot. Marry a woman that's been loved by another. Marry a harlot. Now, can you, can you imagine Hosea? He wants to get married. He's like any other guy. He wants to get married. And the Lord speaks, marry a woman who is in 
harlotry. Can you imagine the, the uh, intensity when Hosea realized that his whole life is about to be a prophetic message? He's not just going to learn a message and preach a message. He's actually going to become the message in a prophetic parable, and he's going to live it out before the northern kingdom. He's prophesying to the northern kingdom, and his life is the prophecy. I mean, unbelievable. And the Lord says, marry a harlot. And so he marries a, a woman who's been loved by other lovers. Her name is Gomer. And she bears him three children, a son, a daughter, and a son. And the Lord gives him prophetic names for each of the children. The first child, he says, call him Jezreel. And Jezreel means God will scatter. God will scatter. And he goes, name him Jezreel because I'm about to scatter the northern kingdom of Israel. And then he has a daughter, and he says, name her Loruhama, Loruhama, which is not pitied. And the Lord says, I am about to show no pity, no mercy to the northern kingdom. And then he says, and then he has another, there's another child, and it's a son. He says, and name him Loami. And that, that means not my people. For God says, I am going to reject them from being my people. Now you read that and you go, mean old God? I mean, that's, you're so mean, you're going to scatter them and reject them and show no mercy. Well, they've been worshiping demons for 150 years. They had promises that they could be just as flourishing as, as David's kingdom. And instead, they make golden calves and false worship and set up false altars. And God raises up a Hosea that his life would be a prophetic message. And he names his children what God is going to give that nation. But here's the thing that the Lord does. And I don't think we understand the way the Lord is. But the Lord sets it up so when Hosea, after he has that third child, after he already gets the message... That God is going to scatter them. He's, going to be, uh, he's not going to show them any mercy. And he's going to revoke their, who they are as his people. Then God says this in Hosea 1 verse 10. It says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them. You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel, see there's the two kingdoms, shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. It's prophesying of Messiah to come. And they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. Now that's so interesting. Great will be the day of Jezreel. God says great will be the day of when I scatter them. Now, it's interesting because that Jezreel has two different, uh, two different interpretations, two different levels of prophetic interpretation, prophetic revelation. The first one is, great will be the day of Jezreel because God is getting ready to scatter them to all the nations in 120 years. 
He's going to scatter them all over the earth. And he's saying, great will be that day. And we go, oh, my gosh, that's going to be a great day. He goes, oh, yeah, because they'll never worship demons in Israel again after I scatter them. I'm going to break the demon worship. And great will be the day of Jezreel. And he tells us what the day of Jezreel is in Hosea chapter 2. It's the day when they all come back. They all get born again. They all get saved. And then God takes the nation of Israel and he says Jezreel. He scatters them throughout the earth. And then they are the, the prophetic messengers through all the earth proclaiming to those that don't know the Lord the truth of who Messiah is. He uses, he uses Jezreel to scatter them, to sow them in the earth. And he says, and then those who are not my people shall become my people. And so great will be the day of Jezreel. It's the breaking of the demon worship and the sowing of Israel at a later time into the earth to bring in a mass harvest of souls. And here's where God is. God looks at a demonized people and he says, I am going to drop a hammer of judgment on you. I am going to cut off the names of the demons from your lips. And the reason why is because I'm in love with you. I am absolutely in love with you. He goes, I will not always have my anger towards you. In fact, he doesn't even get one verse later. And he goes, oh, and by the way, I know I'm going to scatter you, but I'm going to gather you. He goes, and I know I'm going to be merciless in judgment. He goes, but I'm going to show you mercy. He goes, and I know I'm going to call you for a season, not my people, but in a minute, you will be my people, and I'll be your God. And God's, here's, here's what I'm trying to get over to you. God's mentality towards Israel throughout the, old, uh, the whole Old Testament is this storyline. It's this storyline. It's of a people who go into spiritual harlotry. And that's what he calls it. When they begin to worship demons, he calls it spiritual harlotry. Because they're betrothed to God, but they're giving themselves in worship to demons. It's the same as someone who is uh, betrothed or married, and they go and worship. And, I mean, they go and have sex with someone else. It's the same idea. He goes, it's harlotry. And so the Lord calls the nation... Uh, he says, you guys are in spiritual harlotry for what you're doing there in the northern kingdom. And if you look through the scriptures, there's, there's multiple chapters. And I just want to give you a few. Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 23, and Isaiah 51. They all paint the same storyline. And I'm just going to tell it to you in story fashion so that you can go back and study it out and read it later. And this is where we get the headline from Isaiah 54 where God says... Your maker is your husband. Let me just read Isaiah 54, and then I'll tell you the storyline that we see throughout all the Old Testament. He says, your maker is your husband in Isaiah 54, 5. He says, the Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. And that is God's message towards this, this nation that's gone off the deep end and, and totally rebelled against him. It was his message in the Old Testament. It's his message now. And here's the storyline that God paints in Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 23, and Isaiah 51. He talks about them as if they're a woman. And he says, I was married to you. And the story is like this. It's as if a woman was married to a man... 
And the woman goes into adultery. And the man knows about it. He finds out about it. And he says, listen, I don't care that you're in adultery. I want you to stop the adultery and come back to me. And she goes, you know, um, I don't think so. I don't want you anymore. I want my new lover. And there's not a man in this room that's married. If you had that conversation with your wife, that would absolutely be crushing. And that's what Israel says to, to the Lord. She says, no, no, I don't want you. I want my new lovers. And the Lord, instead of, you know, immediately dropping judgment on her, the Lord says, you know what, it's okay. And he, as a man, he, he essentially, he moves out. It would be like uh, a modern-day husband allowing the woman to stay in adultery, and the husband doesn't make her move out. He himself moves out. And then the woman has her adulterous relationship move in to the house the man paid for. And the whole time, he knows what's going on. And he begins to, you know, send her messages. Hey, hey, listen, if you'll quit with that relationship, I'll, I'll, I'll come back. You know, he's leaving her voicemails and he's writing her letters, love letters. Hey, listen, I love you. I don't, I don't care what you've done. I will come back if you will cut that relationship off. And she continues to tell him, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to be with you. I just I want to be with my new lover. And so what she does is she doesn't just become a woman in adultery. She says, you know what I've decided to do? This is the, I'm, I'm not getting graphically. This is, the, this is the picture the Bible paints. She goes, I'm not going to just be one married to, to one man. I'm going to give myself, I'm going to become a, uh, a prostitute. And I'm going to take the house you gave me and I'm going to make it a house of prostitution. Like, do we understand that, you know, before Judah actually got judged in 600, before they, the temple was actually destroyed uh, by the Babylonians, that they had actually taken false gods and brought them into the temple of the Lord and began to worship false idols in the temple? Not just one, multiples. And so it would be like the woman saying, you know what, I, I don't want to just be an adultery. I want to be a prostitute. And I'm going to use the house you gave me as a whorehouse. And he sends, you know, it gets serious for him. So he begins to send messengers. He sends people. And, he, and they show up at the door and they say, hey, listen, he loves you. For real, you don't have to do this. And she just snaps her fingers and her pimp, it's just, it'd be like her pimp just beats up the messengers. And he keeps sending more messengers and more messengers. Hey, really, really, don't do this. He still loves you. She's going on in this for years. And he's coming, hey, really, really, don't do this. He loves you. And every messenger he sends, they beat him up, bloody him, and send him back. Until finally the man says, you know what? I'm going to send her son. If I send the son that we've had together... If I send the son, if I send her son, my son, surely, surely she'll come to her senses. 
And he sends her son, and she allows the pimp to kill her own son. Now, that is a brutal story, but it gets worse. This is the biblical story. This is the biblical picture. I'm actually doing it lightweight. You'll go home and read Ezekiel 23, and you'll go, oh, my gosh. You'll read Jeremiah 3, and you'll go, oh, my goodness. So now that the pimp has killed her son, has beaten all these messengers, the pimps and, and all the lovers that she's giving herself, in fact, she's not even charging anymore. She's just doing it for free. They begin to beat and abuse her mercilessly. They begin to kick and beat her up all the time. And she becomes beaten and bludgeoned at the hands of the very ones she gave herself to. And the whole time, the message to her is, hey, you don't have to do this. I love you. So finally, she spent herself in every single way, physically, emotionally. She spent herself. She's broken and, and beaten down. And she finally comes to her senses and says, hey, would you, would you take me back now? I mean, after years of prostitution and harlotry, after multiple beatings at the hands of the one she's given herself voluntarily to, she calls the husband and says, hey, I, I know it's been years, but would you take me back? You know what his answer is? Yes. Yes. I will take you back. You know what the message through the entire Old Testament is? He goes, I'm going to judge you. But he goes, I'm going to judge you by the hands of the ones you've given yourself to. So when Israel turns and worships the gods of the nations, what does God do? He takes those nations and uses those nations to judge her. She is going to turn around at the very end of the age and she's going to say, will you take me back? And he's going to say, I absolutely will. I absolutely will. Now it's, that's the mentality and the context that we have for Hosea 2. Hosea 2, we kind of throw the verses around, but we don't have a picture of who he's talking to. He's talking to this northern kingdom that's given themselves in harlotry over and over and over and has been beaten and abused at the hands of the other lovers. She's been worn out completely. And then Hosea shows up in Hosea chapter 2 and he begins to prophesy to her the truth of the way the Lord feels about her. So let's look at Hosea 2 now. Now that we got the story clear and then these words, oh my goodness, these words explode when you have the context. Verse 13. I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold. Now, who does this? He goes, I'm going to allure her. That's one of the biggest beholds in the Bible. He goes, I am going to Allure her. You're going to allure your wife 
that decked herself in jewelry and gave herself to all the other lovers and she forgot about you, you're going to allure her? He goes, oh yeah. I'm going to draw her to myself with loving kindness. I am going to captivate her heart, the revelation of my beauty. I'm going to draw her unto me. I'm going to allure her. And he goes, I'm going to allure her and bring her into the wilderness. <laughs> I'm going to bring her to a place where she has no other options but me. I'm going to make it dry and challenging and hard. I'm going to cause her to go into a place where there's not an abundance of water and where she's going to have to seek to find water. I'm going to take her. I'm going to draw her in. I'm going to lure her into the wilderness. And he goes, when she's there, I'm going to speak comfort to her. You're going to speak comfort to this adulterous, harlot wife who gave herself for free to multiple other lovers. He goes, oh yeah, I'm going to comfort her. Who does that? Who is like, I mean, is, what man is like that? Because I'm going to give her vineyards from there. In the valley of Achor is the door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. He's using a play on words because the word for master is the same word as Baal. Because you're going to see me so differently. Because I'm not going to be just like one of these other lovers, one of these false gods that you've been worshiping and giving yourself to. Because I'm not going to be just like one of these ones you've, you've chosen in your harlotry. She goes, you're going to really see me as a husband. You're going you're gonna to let her see you really as husband? Like, what is that? Who does that? He goes, I'm going to take from her mouth the names of the Baals. They shall be remembered by their name no more. He goes, she'll totally forget all the other lovers. In that day, I'm going to make a covenant with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle. I will shatter from the earth. He goes, I'm going to protect her to make them lie down safely. He goes, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. We've said it before, but we've got to get it in this context. That word betrothed, that word is only used for a man who's marrying a virgin. It's a special word that is not used when a uh, husband and wife are in a, another state in terms of their marriage. When maybe it's a second marriage or a remarriage or something like that. This is only used for the young man who's marrying the virgin. And God says to Israel, who's given herself away in harlotries, who's made her own, he's made his house, her own house, his house, a, a, a den of prostitution. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm going to betroth you to me. He goes, I'm going to think of you just like a virgin. I'm not going to think of you. You know, you're not going to have to sort of pay, uh, you know, for my affections. He goes, I'm going to think of you as a virgin. I'm going to think of you as clean and pure, and holy. Because I'm going to betroth you in righteousness, in the beauty of holiness. That's righteousness. The beauty of holiness to the Lord. He goes, I'm going to betroth you to me in justice. 
He goes, every, that, that is such a powerful statement. He goes, everything of darkness that's in you or that's come against you, I am going to release justice on that thing. Justice. He goes, I'm going to be your avenger. See, because when she comes crawling back after she's been beaten and abused, he's going to turn to the ones that have beaten and abused them or her. And he is going to beat and abuse them. When Jesus comes with fire in his eyes, I'm telling you what, he's not coming to hang out under the shade tree first. He is coming to bring justice. And loving kindness and mercy. Because I'm going to do kind things for you. I'm going to show you my love by how kind I am to you. I'm going to continually be merciful to you. Mercy is only extended to the one who deserves judgment. They don't deserve judgment. There is no, you don't have to be merciful. Because this whole thing is going to be about me being merciful to you. Huh. Because I'm going to betroth you to me in faithfulness. Because you and I will together be united forever in faithfulness to one another. Can you imagine that word to a harlot prostitute of people? God says, you will be joined to me like a virgin in faithfulness forever. And that's what he says. You shall know the Lord. Because in that day, it's going to come to pass. He goes, I'm going to answer. I'm going to answer the heavens and, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth will answer with grain, with new wine and oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. God will sow. He goes, I'll sow her for myself in the earth. And I'll have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. He goes, I don't care where this thing has been. I don't care how you have acted. He goes, I am going to have mercy on you. I am going to love you as one who's never been with another. He goes, we'll be faithfully together forever. And this is his message to a demonized, demon-worshipping people. When Hosea shows up, he prophesies to this nation who's worshipped golden calves and demons and called it Jehovah. And God says, no, no, I'm going to actually be merciful on you. For a moment, I'm going to judge you, but I'm going to be merciful to you, and I'm going to marry you. Here's the thing. This is, where, this is where it must land. I don't know where you've been, but I know where I've been. I know what I look like without Jesus, and it's ugly. I mean, I was a messed up, you know, drug head, I mean, rebellious, you know, just awful, awful person. Just terrible. I make a pathetic God. I found that out firsthand. You know, I was going to hell, and I deserved the hell that I was going to. And I'm clear on that. And I don't know where you've been, but God knows and you know. And here's what's amazing. If he can say it to a nation that bowed down and adorned themselves for demon gods, the God of all the earth, he shows up on the mountain and gives them a law and he says, I want you to be my own precious possession, my own special pe people. I want you to be a royal priesthood and have access to me. I want to have a relationship with you that's different than all the nations of the earth. And they go, that's great, we'll do that. 
And they turn, and in a moment, they're worshiping calves, a golden calf. He takes them through all sorts of pressings and challenges and gives them a king like David. A sign of Messiah. And in a generation, Solomon is again worshiping demons. And the, the, the kingdom has to split. A, a schism comes in the kingdom. And ten of the tribes go. And their main mode of worship are golden calves. And he says, no, no, no. I will, I will marry you. And I will wash all of that away. I'll betroth you to me. Now, I don't know where you've been, but if he can say that to a demonized, demon-worshipping nation who he chose, how powerfully does it apply to you? You've got a yes in your heart to God. You're sitting there and you've got a yes. You're going, I, I, I do. I sincerely want to serve the Lord. Then what are the words from Hosea 2? What do they mean to you? The promises are for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. You actually get in. In fact, in Romans 9, Paul tells us that Hosea 2 applies to all those that get saved in the earth, in this age, on this side. Gentiles. Romans 9 tells us that Hosea 2 applies to now. Those same words of kindness and comfort and beauty and mercy and tenderness and love that God is speaking to the nation of Israel completely applies to you. And if it's in, in our minds, it's like, oh my gosh, what kind of a God are you that you would have such mercy on such a people? I mean, if it's that intense of love that you would, you would get rid of all the, the, the sin that she's done and you would love her in mercy no matter what. I mean, oh my gosh, what kind of a God are you? He goes, oh yeah, it applies to them, but it really applies to you. And when he says... Your maker is your husband. I mean, that's how he looks at you. He looks at you like the husband. And he doesn't look at you like one who's been in prostitution in your previous sin. He looks at you as one who he is betrothed to. As a virgin, completely clean, spotless. And he says, you and me, our life together, it'll be forever. It'll be in righteousness it will be injustice. I will release judgment against every dark place till you're completely pure. He goes, it's going to be in loving kindness. I'm going to kindly show you how much I love you. It's going to be in mercy and it's going to be in faithfulness. This word of the bridal paradigm, the, the lens of the way that God sees us as his bride, the bridegroom God that's burning with emotion and desire. I mean, it is so intensely deep. If he could say it to a demonized nation, how much more does it apply to you? How does he feel about you? How intimate does he want to be with you? What's moving in his heart for you? He takes every sin... He completely throws it away. He takes every wayward action and thought and he destroys it completely and says, no, no, blood of my son, I'll betroth you to me. That's the God that I want to fall in love with. That's the one that I want to know. It totally revamps the way we comprehend God when we see him in context we understand what he's doing in Hosea. 
He's going, it's going to get bad for you. It really is going to get bad for you. And, and, and the rest of the book of Hosea goes, guys, turn around. It's going to get bad for you. But he goes, even if you don't turn around, I and my own arm will bring salvation. Because I'm in love with you. And I say, if, if he can say that to a demonized nation, then what's he saying to you who've got a yes in your heart? I mean, he's rejoicing over you. His whole desire in this life is that you would know that you are made to be loved. Loved by God. He's a bridegroom God. He wants you to fall in love. That, that's, that's the message he's trying to get to human, humankind right now. He's a God who's burning in love. And he wants people to fall in love. That's his desire. Good. Let's just stand. I want to pray. God, we want to comprehend the way you feel, the way you think. What's on your mind for us? We want to know your emotions. We want to see you as the bridegroom God. If you can love a wayward nation and oh how you love them. Oh God, how do you feel about us? How do you feel about your bride, Jesus? In this age, the ones that you've lured, you brought us near by the blood of, of your sacrifice. Everything you do, you do for love. Everything that's in your mind, it's in your mind because of love. So I think it's so fitting that he had Solomon write the Song of Solomon. And he's the man that opened up the nation to demon worship. He has him write the greatest song ever to identify his love for the nation, for his people. And even though that man's going to be the one that, turn, that eventually turns the nation towards demon worship. He's a God of mercy. It's a God of compassion. It's a God of desire. He desires people. He desires you. He desires you. He's a God that loves harlots. He's a God that loves harlots. We've all given ourselves to harlotry, worship of other things. We were created to be loved by God, created to love God. But He's the one who redeems the harlot. That's His message in Hosea. Jeremiah 3 says, because doesn't a man put away a woman for adultery? He goes, but I don't put you away. He goes, return to me. Return to me. He goes, wouldn't any man put away a woman that cheated on him? He goes, but not me. I love you. Return to me.